Art is weird. I don't mean that all art is weird. I mean art as a concept is difficult to define. Being in theater and also a pretentious douchebag, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand, but can often be found keeping each other's company. I have been involved in countless drunken arguments about what even is art. I won't bore you with all the various definitions adopted and discarded over the years, but in light of the discussion we had in this episode, I thought I'd share my favorite definition I've come across so far. In his book, Understanding Comics, Scott McCloud asserts that art is anything that doesn't fulfill our basic impulses of reproduction and survival. As an example, a caveman chasing after a cavewoman to reproduce. Not art. A caveman running away from a saber-toothed tiger. Not art. Laying a trap so the saber-toothed tiger falls off a cliff? Also not art. But giving the saber-toothed tiger the finger as it falls to its death? Art. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but here I'm going to quote McLeod directly. Because of its independence from our evolution-bred instincts, art is the way we assert our identities and break out of the narrow roles nature casts us in. Claire Denis is an auteur with an impressive career and resume, who nonetheless has never broken into the mainstream the way Christopher Nolan or Alfred Hitchcock did. But when she turned her gaze to the narrow confines of military life, those who knew her work would be certain that no typical war film would be the result. But a lot of us film buffs had never even heard of it, let alone seen it. Maybe it's because she's a woman, maybe because she's French, maybe because her art is too abstract to appeal to a wide commercial audience, and maybe it's because this film came out in 1999, which is a year that produced more modern classics than any other, so much so that people even stack it up against the Holy Grail year of 1939 that gave us, among others, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind, not to mention one of my personal favorites, Beaugest. In Grand Company, it's easy for a small film to get lost in the shuffle, even a great film like this. Look, this movie isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea, especially if you balk at the idea of enjoying a cup of tea. It's a masterpiece of gay cinema, it has very little dialogue, it's based on a book nobody ever read if they didn't have to for school, and its qualifications as a war film are so tenuous that we probably wouldn't have added it to the list if any of us had seen it before. But I'm glad we watched it, and we loved getting to talk about it, and I really hope you watch it as well. It really is worth every minute of its 92-minute runtime. And I have little doubt that this is going to be a movie we reference again and again in this podcast, because it captures so many themes that the best war movies strive for, and it does so without ever firing a shot. I have no idea what Claire Denis' personal saber-toothed tiger is, but this is absolutely her giving it the finger. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So dust off your dancing shoes, along with your French pronunciations, and make sure you iron your seams straight as a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. Unpack one of the most baffling endings in cinema history in Claire Denis' 1999 tale of love, masculinity, identity, obsession, and self-destruction, Beau Travail. Call it in. It's danger close. Mm.
Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we are talking about the 1999 Claire Denis film, Beau Travail. It means good work in French. And this is a film about the French Foreign Legion in mostly a training environment in Djibouti. Whose booty? <laughs> Where is Djibouti? It's at the Horn of Africa. Eastern Africa bordering with Ethiopia. My name is Dan, and I am here with my co-hosts and partners. Katie. And Liam. And Katie's here with our mission briefing. Claire Denis is one of the most well-known independent French filmmakers, except here in the U.S. While film snobs like me are well aware of her, she skipped out on most of the spotlight with the general public, likely because she only made her first English-language film in the past few years. Beau Travail is considered her first masterpiece, and when it released in 1999, it was to a storm of praise and rapturous reviews. It's loosely based on Herman Melville's Billy Budd, except instead of a ship and sailors, it is set in Djibouti with the French Foreign Legion. Galou, a hardened master sergeant, tells us his story from modern-day Marseille, and the film switches back and forth between his present and his past. He tells us that he was perfectly happy with his post, and especially his commandant, Forestier. But when his section gets a new recruit, Santin, who manages to capture the love and respect of both the men and his commandant, Galoup begins to feel a raging jealousy that results in tragedy for him and Santin. I wasn't able to find the exact numbers on the budget for this film, but Denis has said that it was very small. Originally, it was intended to be a TV film from the apocryphal stories I was able to find. It ended up grossing around $247,000, which isn't bad at that time for such an independent film. This is definitely the most art film we've done on our show so far, and the fervent tone of several of the film study essays, I mean, reviews, reflect that. <laughs> on its release, it was instantly loved by most critics. Agnes Godard's gorgeous cinematography, the spare and precise script penned by Denis herself, along with Jean-Paul Fargeau, and the tight editing by Nelly Quetier were all considered excellent. One of Denise's strengths as a filmmaker lies in her ability to communicate the narrative visually rather than through dialogue, and there are layers of meaning within every shot. I hadn't seen this movie, but I can tell it is something I will watch several times. But this is, as I said, an art film. It does not have a typical narrative or straightforward storytelling. I want to start our discussion off talking about our thoughts on art films in general, with the understanding that art films can be defined in the same way as the Supreme Court defined obscenity. I know it when I see it. I think they were defining pornography, if I remember correctly. No, it's obscenity, because <laughs> they were obscenity laws. I know, I, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it was like the quote that was, got such a chuckle. It's like, well, I know it when I see it. And it's basically saying that he watches porn, but. <laughs> so art films. So what do you guys, what are your thoughts on art films? I guess if we're going to be loose about the definition, I will give my own definition based on what I've seen so far. Mm -hmm. I would say that I would call an art film something that sometimes can delve into being experimental when it comes with its cinematography and, you know, coloring and other things, or even the writing and acting. Definitely, they have a tendency to not be super popular amongst the masses. They're usually more, they, they get good reviews from the critics and are more 
for cinephiles and people who are going to go to film school and study film. Not that the average person can't enjoy them. I'm just saying the people who seek those types of films out are usually being more studious. Probably my first art house, quote unquote, films I've seen have been spurred by uh, doing a podcast on it. And so, you know, having to watch this film that I'd never seen before, even though, you know, there are like Fellini, for example, has done some of them and being Italian and him being so famous, I've definitely sought out some of his films. Some would argue, not to always bring it back to things I can relate to, but some would really argue that the sequel to Blade Runner in 2049 for a science fiction film was like a very art house film, two hours and 45 minutes with a lot of attention. And Including uh, Denis Villeneuve said that it was the most expensive art house film ever made. Right. I mean, we we often talk about how it's incredible that that film ever got produced because it was going to have a hard time doing well in theaters. Not to mention that it's, again, almost three hours long, which kind of puts you at a disadvantage already. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of new wave French film that I've read a lot about and want to delve into. Uh, We talked about Kurosawa, which will be coming up soon in our film selections. And again, I haven't seen a lot of his films which may or may not be art house, but I have a very loose definition because my experience with those types of films is relatively limited, but I always enjoy the foray into them and I'm always excited to read more about them and learn. So that's been my experience. Liam. So I would say that under Dan's definition, I really love art house films. Like I love art films. I have sat through things that I I would like to think Dan would never fucking sit through because they're terrible. And I feel <laughs> like Dan has, Dan, you have the good sense to be like, this fucking sucks and like turn the thing off. I don't always have that mechanism in me. So like I, I sat through Koyana Skatsi a lot fucking longer than any human being should. And like, Fuck that movie uh, hard. Uh, Also, if you look at something like Andy Warhol did a movie, a movie uh, with air quotes called, I think it was called Empire. And Mm. literally he just set up a film camera across the street from the Empire State Building and filmed the front door for like 24 hours. People just like going in and out. Uh, And that played in in some theaters and people like watched it, but did he edit it? No. So it's a 24 hour. It film? might be tw- like, it's, it, it's not like edited for content to like catch the interesting parts. I don't know if he trimmed it down for like time. If it's something that would be a part of an art exhibition, probably fuck that movie. <laughs> uh, but if it's something that's like, I'll be the only one in the theater watching it, then I'll probably like it. You mentioned Kurosawa and uh, Fellini and, you know, you talk about people like uh, Ingmar Bergman with like Persona is uh, definitely like an art house classic. I like there to be a story that's being told and I like there to be, it doesn't even have to be a good plot or like an engaging plot, but there has to be some kind of discernible narrative. Some discernible narrative, yes. Uh, that is that is a perfect way of putting it. And Kurosawa and Fellini, those are 
those are directors that like in their home countries, I don't think would be considered art. I mean, like they're very artfully done and you could very easily classify a lot of them, especially with Fellini as art films. But I think where the moniker art film and sometimes used as a pejorative, like an art house film is one that like doesn't have a commercial market in America. So like these small independent theaters will like these, these art house theaters will just uh, bring in a lot of foreign film or a lot of independent film that is not marketable for a wide release and they will show it. And people who want to seek it out, go to seek it out. And that kind of thing I'm really down with. So before Katie gives us probably the most accurate definition (laughs) and her opinion as a critic, one thing that you made me think about in the way you're describing it is, so I often think about film as a very, as its own medium. Like I think about film within the context of the medium that it is, right? And we've all watched films that are like, this is probably a really good book, but it's not being done. It's not taking advantage of the medium of film in a way that elevates it. It's just not as good as a book. And then it's too boring to be a film, right? We've all seen movies like that. Some might say Atonement was a little bit like that. Because the book is very well-reviewed, whereas the film is... It was nominated for seven Oscars. It was, but it's not considered a good adaptation generally. Right. And so my point is, if you take any medium, whether it's drawing, writing, shooting a film, there are examples within that medium of things that are not art. Obviously, books can be technical. They can be all kinds of things. But only certain books are going to be considered artwork. Same with painting, right? I mean... Painting for the sake of painting is usually considered artwork, whether it's good or bad is a separate question. An architect can draw a technical drawing, and it's still within the same medium. It's not necessarily considered art. So I think film is like that as well. You can watch something that's very technically well-made and put together, but it's not necessarily going to qualify as art. I mean, you are working within the arts for sure, and it's an art form, and it's not like a hard science. But I think that That's another thing that comes to mind when I think of an art house film is something that is taking advantage of the medium of, in this case, cinema to tell its story or to make its point or to project whatever it's trying to project to its audience. See, I think you got really, really close, Dan. That is a really good interpretation. Definitions for any kind of art are always a a wiggly thing. I was going to say, are we going to try to nail down what art is? Because I am here for that fucking (laughs) No, that would would be a different (laughs) podcast. But traditionally, an art film is considered something where the artistry or the experimentation or something like that is really the goal of the film. The goal of the film is to be artistic. Personally, my favorite art film is um, At Eternity's Gate, which is a Julian Schnabel picture that stars Willem Dafoe as Vincent van Gogh. It is a gorgeous film. It has one of the best scores of the past decade. And it is very quintessentially, because Julian Schnabel is a painter. Like, he is an actual painter who has very great success at that. And then he also dips his toes into directing. It is very slow moving. So many of the shots look like paintings and then a lot of them are then then transposed you can see it it tries to convey what van gogh was feeling when he was digesting all of these very beautiful views in france for his artwork that's kind of what when it's an art film we're talking about for me again mere mileage may vary we're talking about something that 
it's aiming to be shown in a museum. It, it's something that's meant to be considered not just for the story, but for itself, if you will. And I did see at Eternity's Gate in the Walker Art Centers. <laughs> you've you've sat through Koyaanisqatsi, right? I have not, and from your review, don't I don't think I need to. Do it. <laughs> My friend Jamie loves it. <laughs> your so, friend Jamie is wrong. Jamie, you're wrong, man. <laughs> <laughs> he loves art films, though, for sure. I, I think art films are definitely, and that's where I think this is, I'm going to acknowledge that a lot of our audience might not have taken the time to watch it, or it may not appeal to them, because it is kind of oblique in its storytelling, and it is so... It holds no hands, and it is not there to coddle you. It is very much meant to challenge you to find the meaning and interpret it. It is not something you can just sit back and be like, oh, this is interesting. Like, if you're just watching it, you're going to fall asleep. You have to be engaged. Like, this isn't 90% a silent film. Like, this could have just been a silent movie, by and large. Yeah, it's an incredibly spare script. And it works because of that, because that's what she is trying to convey. It's much more about emotion than it is concrete ideas or dialogue. And Denis herself has said that she does not like... Um, she doesn't like making films with a lot of dialogue because to her, it's a lot of sound and fury meaning nothing. Like she wants to get to the point of her stories in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb right out front here and let the audience know if they haven't figured it out already. If you're listening to this without having seen this film, I would not classify this as a war film. We do want to reach out to a broad audience and we want to challenge ourselves and challenge the audience sometimes. And while we're willing to do something fun like Hot Shots and even movies that are not that great, maybe, we also want to challenge ourselves and watch things that are more art house or artsy. Now, that can kind of blend the two genres. Something like The Thin Red Line is definitely going to like 100% qualify as a war film. It depicts combat, people get shot and die, etc. There's violence in it. Whereas this does not have that, and it mostly, at, at best, depicts some training. And it certainly shows the military, and that is the context. Right, right. It's a military film more than a war film. Correct. So we're we're kind of stretching on the boundary of what films we are willing to cover on this main feed, and we would not do too many of these in a row because we don't want you guys to tune out. So we know this film won't be for everyone. If you're not into the types of films we've been describing so far, you may want to skip this episode and that's okay. But for everyone else who's still listening, we do want to challenge ourselves and tackle something that is a little more ethereal, a little more ambiguous, and a little more difficult to figure out. And that's what we're here to do today. If you couldn't handle the frogs in Magnolia, like you probably won't like this movie. I think it it feels in some ways like, and not a war movie, like you said, but it is so very military and it is meant to examine a particular kind of man that very often ends up in the military and the kind of environment that the military creates within an, because this is an all male an all-male group. Yeah, it most definitely interrogates and investigates themes that war films do investigate. So there, there is a Venn diagram there. There's definitely overlap. I'll give it that. Right, and that's why I think I'm happy we talked about it because it really – a lot of war movies just don't have the time to really – or that's not their point – to really explore the the deep effects 
that serving in the military, whether or not you're seeing combat, has on individuals and what kind of mindsets it can create and all of that. So I think that's why I'm really happy we're talking about it because it's there's a lot going on here and it's it's good in my opinion. You talk to people who join the military from dire circumstances and you know it's not uncommon for somebody to say like no joining the military best thing i've ever done absolutely saved my life turned my shit 100% around and that's not i don't think because of the combat like if you've seen i think it's because of the structure and the sense of your place as a in a whole like being a part of something like some greater apparatus is is if you don't have that in your life and you feel directionless, like the military has got a goddamn direction, you know, it's going to point you and say, go do the thing. So I think that's something that, you know, a lot of times we, we think about it in terms of, or at least those of us who, who are not military people uh, think about it in terms of like the bonds that are formed in seeing combat. And while I'm sure that's a part of it, I think a lot of those bonds and that, that sense of purpose is going to get filled anyway. Uh, just by the experience of being in this sort of environment. Right. And the French Foreign Legion in particular is such a great example of that because it takes in anybody. And from what I could find, the perspective in, in France, at least, is that the French Foreign Legion is a lot of outsiders and they're outsiders finding their place together. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And I do want to take the opportunity to at least do the military history justice on this episode, since we have not talked about the French Foreign Legion before, although I'm sure that we will again. It's an organization that has quite the reputation that precedes it. I think for most of us, at least, when I think of the French Foreign Legion, I definitely think of some tough-ass combat-deployed soldiers who serve outside of France and are tough, come from difficult, traumatic backgrounds, and sort of do the work that nobody else in France wants to do. And I think the history kind of reflects that. The French Foreign Legion has been serving France since 1831, when it was created under the Bourbon monarchy. It was first divided into seven battalions, and at the time, they divided them based on nationality. So there was Swiss, Polish, Italian, Spanish, and Dutch-Belgian battalions. And under their rules, the Legion would only serve outside of mainland France. So that's where foreign Legion comes from, la Légion étrangère. Kyle Pocock did our research for this, so thank you very much, Kyle. We're doing our best with the French pronunciation, and despite the fact that I took four years in high school, I am pretty damn rusty. Well, don't worry. I'm here to make you look good. It's like the Garfield diet where you look skinny by hanging out with fat people. <laughs> I'm usually the person people hang out with in that scenario, by the way. You could be our Garfield. That's kind of sweet. Fuck yeah. Give me the lasagna. So Algeria comes up a lot and the French Foreign Legion sort of sees its spiritual home as Algeria because they spent a lot of time there. Algeria was a French colony for a long time, so they were there to protect French interests. They fought Arabs a lot in Algeria, so that's kind of a theme there. So they have a strong connection to Africa, especially Northern Africa. Eventually, Colonel Joseph Burnell reorganized the legion into mixed nationality companies based on their role instead of their nationality and so that is what we see certainly at this point in 99 
where you have legionnaires from all over the place. We saw Russians, French, probably, yeah, African uh, legionnaires. They saw combat in the Crimean War, the Second Italian War of Independence in the 1800s, another return to Algeria after their initial start there. They fought in Mexico in 1863, where they were, uh, where a, a small patrol of 65 was killed off in a very valiant fight. After that battle, the wooden hand of Captain Danjou was returned to the Legion and remains in a museum somewhere as uh, one of their most important artifacts. So one of the Legionnaires that was killed in that battle, his wooden hand was returned to the Legion. Anyways, they had continued con colonial campaigns in North Africa, China, and then the First World War. They were involved in Gallipoli, the Balkans, and there was a sizable number of Legionnaires sent out to the Battle of the Somme. 70% of legionnaires were killed in World War I. So they had a lot of uh, reorganizing to do. General Paul Rollet later reorganized the Foreign Legion, brought back in the traditional white kepi blanc, which is this uh, round hat. It's a little hat. Well, that's not a little hat. That's a big-ass hat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, Dan, can you, can you rewind for one second? Sure. They returned his wooden hand. Yeah, so... How did he have a... Like, that's like the boring part of the story. Yeah, they were... <laughs> uh, the, the whole story is that on April 30th, 1863, a small patrol of 65 men led by Captain Jean Danjou was set upon by over a thousand Mexican infantry and cavalry, so vastly outnumbered, forcing them to seek refuge in the meager shelter of Hacienda Camarón. Might say shorthanded. Fighting, <laughs> fighting desperately nearly to the last man, the five remaining survivors burst out from the flaming hacienda in a last-ditch bayonet charge, only to be cut down in a hail of gunfire by the Mexicans sieging the house. When Mexican commander Milan realized how few men had been fighting back ferociously, he remarked that these are not men, they are devils. And I guess out of respect, they returned the wooden hand of the captain to the Foreign Legion, and to this day it's like on display in some museum somewhere. Fast forwarding to the beginning of World War II when France was invaded, this scattered legionnaires all over the place who fought in the Battle of France. Charles de Gaulle, who got out of France and formed the French Free Army to fight back against the Germans, and out of that he formed the uh, 13e Demi-Brigade, which is the organization that we see in the film, actually, just the modern iteration of it. So um, one of the brigades and divisions still loyal to Vichy France, the 6th Regiment, would end up fighting the Free French 13th in Syria near Damascus. So this same half brigade that we see in the film fought against other Frenchmen loyal to Vichy France during the Nazi occupation of France in World War II, which is pretty crazy. Which Vichy was like the, the puppet government that... The, the Germans had set up to, like, rule, but, like, enforce the Nazis. Exactly. It would be very interesting to hear some stories from that battle where you had Frenchmen fighting other Frenchmen. Because I imagine there was a lot of turncoating and unresolved things there where it's like, if you start losing, you're like, great, we can go back to France and fight against Germany. I'd imagine there's a lot of interesting stories there. Following the liberation of France, they spent time in French Indochina, uh, which is Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, they fought a battle at Dien Bien Phu. They were forced to surrender there. This is before the Americans got involved in Vietnam. So the French Foreign Legion was involved with the French in Vietnam. 
They then turned to counterinsurgency in Algeria during some brutal desert fighting in the 60s. Some legionnaires plotted the assassination of de Gaulle for basically negotiating a peaceful resolution with the National Liberation Front in 1962 in Algeria. The legionnaires were not happy with that, apparently. He chose not to dissolve the legion after that. For the rest of their history, French Foreign Legion would continue to do what they've always done, protecting French territory and interests around the world, including Congo and Mali. They were involved in interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan and more modern wars. Legionnaires would always find themselves in far-flung places of the world, conducting the most dangerous missions. Basically, when France was too hesitant to send in the French army, they would send in legionnaires. Historically, one in ten legionnaires die in combat. And famously, the legion seems to take pride in this fact and attracts men hellbent on seeking combat and joining a brotherhood of soldiers who swear loyalty to their legion, not their country. Their training... It's shorter but comparable to special forces training, like Navy SEAL training, etc. Some of the most physically and mentally demanding training that's available. One famous Legion officer said, a, leg a Legionnaire who's not working is a Legionnaire who can make mistakes, so they keep them very busy, as depicted in the film. If they're not fighting, they're training, digging holes, whatever. Pretty typical for an infantry unit. Infantry units all around the world are famous for... Staying busy, digging lots of holes in training, and also keeping their uniforms really sharp. Because discipline of any sort is important. And so boredom and lax regulations is kind of the last thing that you want with a combat-trained force that's going to get bored and then go into town and wreak havoc. So they have to keep them busy. The desert training in the world is accomplished in Djibouti, as we see in the film. So they kind of had a dual mission of training recruits in desert warfare in Djibouti, while also doing some anti-terrorism and sort of helping out with border control between the border of Djibouti and Ethiopia at the time, which had some problems. So they have infantry, paratroop, and cavalry battalions. Again, this is a pretty combat-oriented organization. They use the same equipment as the rest of the French army. And then, more interestingly, which I think the film gets into, when you talk about sort of people, young men in this case. I'm not sure if the French Foreign Legion takes women at this point in modern times. It looks like they didn't in 99, or certainly they... Well, it certainly wasn't like a mixed unit if they did. Right. Get Paul Verhoeven on that, man. He'll get them showering together. But famously, in the Foreign Legion, you could join with... They just ask you your name with no documentation. So if you had a shady past, you could make up a name, and that's your new name in the Foreign Legion... So a lot of criminals and undesirables used to just escape civilian life and go into the French Foreign Legion because you didn't have to be a citizen. Three or four years of service would grant you French citizenship and still does. As well as if you're ever wounded in combat, you get, you're immediately eligible for French citizenship. Francais par la sang versé or French by spilled blood. Oh shit, that's metal as fuck. <laughs> it's pretty metal. <laughs> <laughs> they train them hard, they treat them hard, but the reward is that you are sort of given the unending loyalty of the French government and get to become a citizen. As a last point that's kind of interesting, during World War II, Germans who didn't want to fight for Germany during the Nazi regime 
Some of them escaped and joined the French Foreign Legion and were then in situations where they were German men fighting with the French Foreign Legion against the German army or against Nazis, depending on who they were fighting against, which is interesting. And then conversely, after the war, you had a lot of former Nazis escaping into the French Foreign Legion because, again, you could make up a new name and then go risk your life uh, for France and eventually get French citizenship. So I would not be surprised if there are former Nazis that continued their lives on in France after a three or four year stint with the French Foreign Legion. So interesting military organization that does not really have a parallel anywhere else in the world. And they do not allow women to join. There has been one. Her name was Susan Travers, and she joined during the period uh, around World War Two, or no, excuse me, World War One, because she was part of the French Expeditionary Force uh, as an ambulance driver, and then she was fi- she found a way to get into the Foreign Legion. But yes, they 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 do not allow women even to this day. Still to this day, okay. And I believe they take men um, who are seventeen. It's like 17 and a half is the requirement you have to be. So what's the oldest? Because like, I may need to boogie at some point. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you've reached, you've reached the limit. All your internet piracy is going to uh, come to a head and you may have to escape out the back door. Napster's coming for me or whatever. <laughs> they celebrate uh, an 18th birthday in the film. Uh, yes. Oh, right, right. And I remember thinking like, that guy does not look 18. <laughs> but he is supposed to be 18. <laughs> the actor does not. In the U.S. military, 17 and a half is the minimum, but your parents have to co-sign for you. If you're 18, right. then you can sign for yourself. I wonder if France has a – or if the Foreign Legion has a similar requirement. Yeah, I think it's 17 and a half is what I saw. Because so. you're considered an adult. Well, that's good. And the other thing is they can automatically drink, which is nice because I've always had a problem, mostly in the U.S., but really with any country – who allows people to join up at a certain age and then doesn't allow them to drink. And that always pissed me off during my time in the Marine Corps where you could be 20 and like in the infantry fighting in a war, but then you could get severely punished for underage drinking when you came home. And I think they've, they've made some adjustments finally to where if you are of legal drinking age in the country where you're deployed, like in Japan, for example, where we have bases, then you're allowed to drink. They made that change a few years ago. But still, as a concept, if you can die for your country in a war, you should be able to drink a beer. So I think the the biggest reasons that Denis makes it makes this the French Foreign Legion and sets this in Africa is she grew up there. She grew up traveling around in Africa. Her dad was part of the colonial governments in South Africa. No, in West Africa, I think she feels that she is a child of Africa because she spent so much of her early life there and she says and I'm when I was reading this interview I thought of the conversations that we three have had with you talking about Dan that like you feel both Italian and American and somewhere in between because you have done that she described something very similar biculturalism yeah France can never really be home but now that part of Africa is also gone like the world that she grew up in is is no longer because there are are no more colonies. Um, so she described that same feeling. And that is one of the reasons she made the film there is because she wanted to go back to Africa and to explore 
not an insignificant amount to talk about the women in Africa, which this movie does in a very subtle way. Yeah, it has more women in it than you would expect, which in a yes. film like this, often women are just kind of like window dressing and or victims. Um, whereas, yeah, you can you can feel the influence of women in the staff or in the in the crew. To be clear, there are no women victims in this. Women no. are not portrayed in ev- any time as a victim in this. They are, if anything, fairly powerful. It passes the Bechdel test, by the way, because there is that scene with the two women, one of whom is selling the rug to to the other one. And they're not talking about mm-hmm. dudes. They're talking about the rug. Well, I made this myself. Yeah, that's why I can give it to you so cheap. Because <laughs> the rug qualifies as a non-man. Okay. Yes. I'll go with that. <laughs> and that woman is the one who you see at the very end who's tending Santan and the, after they've picked him up in the desert. Not Galu's girlfriend, but the woman she was buying the rug from or selling the rug to. Yes, the woman who is selling the rug is the one who um, is giving water to Santan at the okay. end. Interesting bit about Galu's girlfriend. The actor who plays her was, a, a lot of them were, were non-actors, but she was a prostitute. Oh, in real life. In real life, like she was, she was a prostitute and she was new to it. That makes sense. Not that I ever would have guessed it, but. No, yeah, but it's something that she was, she was new to it. She was doing it like she wasn't ashamed of it. She was doing it to support her family. The way I, I heard Claire Denis talking about it, I don't know if it's just the idea that like. French have uh, the French have completely different like social morals and mores and uh, things like yes, that. Yes, they do, and, and a lot of very different attitudes about sex and sexuality than we tend to have here in America. Uh, she was very upfront about it. She was like, "No, this girl's a prostitute," and like she was actually nervous about doing any scenes in the bedroom because of her profession. Um, oh. so like. It, weird kind of like she didn't want to like be filmed doing anything sexual. So that's why like part of the reason why there's none of that there, like she and Claire Denis like worked very well together on setting up the, the blocking and how things were going to be depicted because she didn't like, I don't know all of the reasons for it, but it had to do with like, didn't want it messing up her day job, I guess. And I could see how Claire Denis was like, don't worry, I got you. I got yeah, you. Cause she, exactly. she is not one for graphic sex scenes, especially at this time in her career. Like she yeah. didn't find those interesting or worth depicting is what she said at the time. Everybody who I like all the stories that I've, that I've heard of her, especially with uh, the, the gentleman who, who plays Galou, Denis Levant. Denis Levant, Levant. That's right. Did I do it right? Did I say the thing? You did the you thing. Did. Am I saying the words? I don't have to drop the Pittsburgh uh, clip. <laughs> black and yellow, black and yellow. Who is a um, very, very successful and well-known French actor. Yes. He came into this late because he was finishing up a play. And so everybody else was already like on location and he came into it late. And he could not stop raving about working with Claire Denis about like how how easy a transition it was and how she was he was like we just we knew exactly what we wanted like and he he used the word we a lot when he was talking about like her direction he's french him. yes <laughs> that was bad um <laughs> the other actor that in this um michel subor he is a classic french actor who's been making films since the 60s and um 
The interesting thing about the role that he plays here as Bruno Forestier is that this is a role he has played before. He plays um, the same character in a film called La Petite Soldat, which was written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard, who was one of Claire Denis' big influences. Um, and I think she did uh, work with him when she was younger. And she talked about in an interview I saw where she wanted to work with him. And she's like, if I was making films then, I, I would have worked with him. And so this is definitely an adaptation of Billy Bud, but it is also the character from La Petite Soldat continuing on now, like 30 years later. Yeah. Now is, so I'm not familiar with that film. Like I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. Is that him just as a younger man in the foreign legion or is he in a different branch of the military? No, no, he is, it's during the Algerian war and he lives in Geneva to escape French enlistment. And it, it's kind of a spy thriller. He works for French intelligence and all that. Okay. I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Oh, so he's not in the foreign legion in that. He is not in the foreign legion. But he has the same name. So is that more of like an homage, like just like a name drop, like? What Denise said is that this is what she envisioned the character would have gone on to do is that he would have joined the Foreign Legion because, like, as Dan has told us, you don't you don't have to give your real name or anything, and once you're in, you're in. So that is what she envisioned for that character later. So is the character's name the same, though? Character's name is the same, and it's meant to be the same person. Okay. From La Petite Soldat. That's interesting. That was something that, that kind of ruins one of my theories. Oh, okay. Well, it's not even that big a stretch of the theory. But, you know, one of the things that's often talked about this and when it's studied in a film class, they focus on the homoeroticism of this movie. Yes. They're not the only ones. The French Foreign Legion did not want this movie to get made because they were like, you're not doing a gay movie about the French Foreign Legion. From what I heard in an interview I watched with Denis, she said that at first they were going to get like all this, you know, support from the the foreign legion and then when they found out that there were there were gay themes in it they not only removed their support but like would come in and like destroy their stuff and like threaten to beat them up and when Whoa. they were filming oh they were like there was always like legionnaires up on like a hilltop watching them they must have enjoyed that while they were filming to like make sure that nothing too gay happened but no, but what I was going to say was I had an, it's, it's not blatant, but I had a hard time figuring out which person Galu was infatuated with or which, which he had homosexual feelings for, because he does lavish a lot of attention and praise and puts a lot of importance on uh, the commandant, but it's really like the catalyst is the arrival of Santan. And so, and he's, and he's just, everybody believes that he's young and beautiful and charismatic and everybody loves him. So is it that he's attracted to him, but hates, hates him for being attracted to him? Is it that he is jealous of the attention that he's getting from the commandant? But, and, and this is where my theory came in was the commandant has, a bracelet that says Bruno. My theory was, was that the commandant 
Cause he talks about like how like nobody really knows anything about like where he came from and knowing that like you can make up any name to get into the French foreign legion. My thought was that he had entered the French foreign legion under the name of this Bruno person who he probably loved in his previous life. That's a great theory. And cause I'm like, who wears a, bracelet with your own name on it i mean maybe renald de chatillon who like leaves his house and screams (laughs) his own name but like a normal human being doesn't just have like well i don't know like kids will sometimes wear like their name on it right like what like 52 year old man has a bracelet with his first name on it that is a little yeah it's really weird well you never I don't think you see him with the bracelet. You see Galou with the bracelet. Oh, I thought that was I thought that was his wrist that we, we were seeing that on. I thought that was that was Bruno's. That's Galou. Is and it? Let me see it. That's that's him. He's the one who has that. Okay, I miss I misinterpreted I that because that looked to me like it was on the commandant's wrist. I think it, there might be a scene where it shows that, but I think it is implied because uh, Galou has it when he's in Marseille. I think it is implied that it once belonged to Forestier, but then he gave it to Galou. Oh, man. Because I now I'm remembering my first time seeing the film as opposed to my second time, where when he was talking about Forestier, I assumed that Forestier had died in like combat or something before they show you the character. And right. so that's what I associated the bracelet with. I'm like, oh, this is like a comrade of his that has died. Okay, so Dan, what were your impressions of the homoeroticism? Because you you've said before the show that you had a different a different take on it than Liam and I. Yeah, so I think if you've listened to the show so far and have gotten to know us a little bit, obviously everyone's history and background is different, and that affects how you view things. So for me, first of all, my gaydar is like very broken, but then I've also realized it's just my like identifying sexuality radar is broken. I'm not good at it with straight people either. And I think that for whatever reason that leads me into situations, both in real life and in film with characters where it's just like sexual orientation is not the thing I am thinking of upfront, unless it's a sex scene or something obvious. And so I just tend to give people the benefit of the doubt Not that being gay or straight is right or wrong or anything like that, but just I try to not make assumptions about people when I meet them or see them in situations. And I think the more you introduce differences in culture and age and generation and upbringing, the more complex that gets. So when you're talking about like a European organization, it's like, okay, I'm half European. I grew up there, but I left when I was 11. So my standard of what like what's normal for a straight person in terms of how they dress and how they act versus what's like standard or or most normal for a gay person and you know all those things are sort of a blend of your experiences and your cultural background when you add the military to it or to be honest prison which in some ways has a similar environment of you know all men being forced together strictly regimented right and of course pr- prison famously has people who are ostensibly straight making exceptions on their sexuality because they are only going to be around men for the next 30 years and they're not going to give up sex. Like, at least that's one portion of the prison population. 
You could argue that some of those men are gay or bi or closeted or whatever. Well, and it's also it's also oftentimes a matter of uh, a power dynamic as well. Right. Dominance and control. There's that too. But I would say without putting a percentage on it, that it's likely that there are men who, generally speaking, are straight and yet are willing to have sex with other men in environments like prison, for example. So that's obviously an extreme. However, the military, especially like in a foreign place like this, in, you know, close, uh, close quarters, has some of those elements where your development as these young 17 to 22 year olds, whatever. So it's a pretty formative period in your life. And so your experiences that you would normally be having at that age are now being colored by the fact that you're like in some shitty desert that's kind of beautiful but also austere doing some menial work and all your friendships and connections are with this group of young men who happen to also like be in the peak of their physical fitness so not certainly not uh they're all gorgeous yeah they're they're easy on the eyes you know which is certainly a factor uh i mean it's funny my saying in terms of sexuality when i'm confronted with a person who has a heart with a man in this case who has a hard time like judging other men's physical looks and it's like if i've ever said something like wow man that guy's really attractive and the person who i don't know is less open or whatever i'm not gonna (laughs) expound on their issues but when the response is sort of either repulsion or just well how am i supposed to know if he's good looking he's i'm not gay right (laughs) and my response to that is always well I can tell that's a beautiful chair. It doesn't mean I want to fuck it, right? Like, <laughs> I think you could still have some objective. Straight people famously have no eyes, so <laughs> right, they can't see. They can't, they can't see, see beauty. Sexy chair, exactly. So you know, from a personal perspective, I've been comfortable my whole life being like you know intimately close and emotionally close with men, despite the fact that my orientation doesn't lean towards them. And so I really have an open mind when I'm confronted with depictions like this, where I just am not jumping to conclusions about who's gay or who's not or what's being depicted, because it's a it's a different environment from regular society. They're being put in real close quarters. You know, you could be in situations where you are, um, for example, you know, camping or bivouacking out. It's super cold. And it's like literally in the guidebook that you need to like spoon each other to share warmth and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's just a, all that to be said that it's a different environment from regular life. And so you have to kind of take a step back for a second. For example, I loved the intimacy that's portrayed between Santan and the soldier that he rescued, the legionnaire that he rescues after the helicopter accident when they're sort of laying in the boat and he has his arm around him because that's how he was pulling him, you know, rescuing mm-hmm. him in the water. And that's just kind of how they collapsed onto the boat. And I thought that that image, if I was going to take a still frame from this film that sort of sums up how I look at the sexuality and the general feeling, adding the military and and, and the Europeanness and all of that of the men in this film, I think that still frame of them laying in the boat kind of half passed out after that ordeal with him with his arm around his chest like that, I really loved that shot because I thought that it prescribed a lot of intimacy and a lot of closeness and like brotherhood to the shot while being 
I don't even want to say ambiguous. Well, again, it's it's just not a sexual depiction. So it's like it doesn't right. matter whether one of those guys is gay or not in a situation where he's more free to be open. And and I like those types of depictions. I mean, to make a more popular culture example, I always liked the relationship depicted between uh, in Aliens between Vasquez and Drake, who are male and female. One is most likely gay, you know, it's not an overt thing or, or mentioned in the film. And yet they have this brotherly sort of love and this unspoken bond where they're willing to lay their lives on the line for each other. And it has nothing to do with whether they want to sleep together or not, or whether they're in love or not. And there, there's something about that that I find very pure that I really like uh, depicted. Now, Speaking for other scenes in the film, obviously this film is trying to point out how someone could repress their own tendencies or how a a man in this case can sort of go through their own internal thoughts and maybe question their own sexuality or be looking at these half-naked men all day long and and start to have different thoughts than they had maybe before in, in their exposure in their life. And so I think Liam's questions about whether Galu is, is he attracted to the new recruit sent him because he's, you know, fit and young and whatever reminds him of him when he was younger or whatever it is, or is he just concerned that Forestier is going to give him his attention? And so he's gel. I, I think it's like all of the above, right? Uh, all those things are happening at the same time. For sure. So it's very complex. And it's funny I'll close with this. It's kind of funny that you're saying that the French Foreign Legion like made a stand against this movie and was like, oh, you're not going to depict us as a bunch of gays or whatever they said. Because I I feel like with a good trailer, Claire Denis could have very easily not changed anything about the film and yet shown some of it to them and be like, no, it's not gay. They're just like soldiers. Like it's so ambiguous and kind of not defined that of any film where you could be squeamish about, Oh, we're depicting this organization as like having openly gay people. We don't want to do that. It's like, there's no sex scenes, no kissing, no overtly gay scenes in it whatsoever. It's all like undertones. And those undertones are ever present in all one gender organizations, at least with males. I I don't know about all female organizations. So yeah, it's kind of funny that this is the movie that the French Foreign Legion was like upset about and took a stance against. Although I will say that this movie is at least 110% all undertone. So the the gay undertones might be the second loudest undertone, but like this movie is all undertones. There's a lot about masculinity in general in this movie. And Denis regularly makes films that are all about men because she says she really likes to explore masculinity and she, she loves men is how she puts it. And she likes to explore what their world must be like because she's not a part of it. And I think she does it pretty respectfully, in my opinion. But she, the film is supposed to make you ask those questions. And it is supposed to be that vague because there are only a few things that indicate the um, queer aspect of this between Galou and Forestier. Because 
he mentions when he when he first brings up when Galu first brings up Forestier, he talks about how he had an, a, had an admiration for him that he didn't quite understand. And there's a couple of other moments where he says it, um, or right before he decides to go after uh, Santin, he says that day something overpowering took hold of my heart. I thought about the end, the end of me the end of Forestier and throughout so much of the film, it really pushes Galou's feelings towards his, towards this, obviously an inspiration, um, his commander. And I mean, they're very much portrayed as very straight. You know, they play chess together. They play snooker together. They're, they never have any kind Only of the straights play chess. <laughs> In this context, those are meant to be very manly things yes. to do. And there's a denial of... It's pre-Queen's Gambit, girls don't play chess. I would say that it's much easier to play chess without the burden of an Adam's apple. This is also the 90s. So this is not now. This is not... And my understanding is that in French culture, homosexuality and bisexuality and all of that is still viewed uh, much less accepted than even in America, where, you know, we're terrible about it. He also mentions that Forestier had a persistent rumor about him and then just lets that hang. And it's like, that is the kind of way that they talked about being gay or having relationships with men or something in that generation. There was a rumor about him. And that says it all. You know, there's a, they don't use the term, but there's a friend of Dorothy is in the 50s and mm -hmm. they used to refer, or even before that, how they used to refer to someone who was gay as someone who's experienced or who's absorbed a lot of queer media over the years is queer herself. Those are the kinds of ways that you talk about it without talking about it. And it's obvious that the two of them have never been together, but that Galu has some feelings that he doesn't understand because he blatantly states he doesn't understand. Right. It. And I don't think there's any attraction to Santin. I think it is entirely jealousy. I think he sees the commandant giving him all this praise, how much everybody just loves him. He sees him as a threat. Right. And he's prettier than him. Also true. Yes. And he's disrupting this life that Galo has built for himself and has taken part in. And that is, I think, the thing is there's, it's almost like, God, I can't remember the name of the film that has Betty Davis and... Um, All About Eve. Yes, thank you. About the two actresses that um, there's an older one and the younger one, and they're kind of at odds. And it's mirrored in Showgirls, actually, which Verhoeven reference. So... That's where I think the queer subtext comes comes in. And there was also, when this came out, a huge push to, because in America, being queer was really kind of becoming acceptable. So there was this push to reexamine literature, including Billy Budd, with a queer eye and, and ask, is this a queer story that was you know, told this way because it's in the closet. So I think this film really plays into all of that. And the goal is to make you question. I don't know that Denis had any specific, like, this is what's going down between them. It's like, well, I don't know exactly what's happening. What do you guys think type of situation? Yeah, I was going to ask if we're all on the same page that aside from the 
you know, bare chested combat hugging, which I would love to know if that's a real thing. Cause I was like, what the hell are they doing exactly? <laughs> I have an answer. Oh yes. I don't know if this is something that you would find in any foreign legion research other than being there. But in the interview that I saw, which is if you, if anybody in listening to this, <laughs> if there's anybody listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. If there's anybody out there. You didn't say it that way. I just came into my head like that. If anybody is still here with us today, <laughs> if you've made it this far, if you have, if anybody out there listening has uh, the inclination to get the Criterion copy of the C- Criterion Blu ray of Beautreville, uh there's a great conversation that was recorded in 2020 with director Barry Jenkins and, and Claire Denis. Yes. I'm going to go watch it after this because oh, that's to. what I it's bought so for this. Uh, that's where she talks about her experience with the the resistance from the Foreign Legion and uh, making the film. But also that they had somebody who had been in the Foreign Legion there with them in the making of it. I wasn't sure if it was one of the nameless legionnaires in the film or if it was just an advisor. But he said that that is an exercise that they do that is like off the books. Like it's not part of like the foreign legion training it's in no materials but it is something that they do also with the like the circular stare down like not breaking eye contact is another thing that they do interesting okay so there were like some things that are common practice in the foreign legion that aren't in any kind of foreign legion handbook you wouldn't know it unless you were in it right and i don't know the reason for them necessarily but it is a very visceral connective sort of uh, those are some moments in there that are equal parts baffling and uh, just really gripping in the one case, literally where they're just, you know, repeatedly slamming into each other with like the, the most violent hug over yeah, and combat over hugging. Yeah. It's combat. <laughs> it's, I think it's the only way to describe it. Right. I imagine that's what the care bear stare feels like. It's fascinating to hear you say that some of those were confirmed, but to be actual French foreign legion, like training styles or whatever, because I think that Denis sort of skirts that line in the way they choreograph this ballet of training with the with the music which some of it's apparently from billy bud it's from the, like, it, it, most of it is from the opera yeah the which opera is cool billy bud. it definitely gives it this these scenes of just like stretching sometimes this very intense feel is it benjamin Britten yes. that wrote the opera but I always assumed that that was just her taking creative license and turning military training into a sort of dance. And I'd be curious to know, for example, the sort of eye contact, stare down, dance off thing or walk off thing. It sounds like you guys are saying that that is something they actually do in the French Foreign Legion, which I can't see any practical purpose for it. Whereas the combat hugging, when I was trying to connect it to military, like martial arts training that I've done, I'm like, okay. I could relate this to body hardening. Body hardening is when you take turns. For example, you do it on your forearms and on the muscle on your shins, and you take turns like literally hammering each other in those spots to get the nerves used to uh, that impact so that those areas of your body become stronger and harder and can resist blows more easily. That's body hardening. I could see that sort of combat hugging somewhat t- 
taking that place. It's like body hardening your torso, I guess. Again, if you're trying to look at it from the most myopic military training lens possible, like that's the practical application I would give it. But it obviously fits in with what Denis is trying to do in blending military training techniques with a dance, including the music, the way the scenes are shot. Uh, that first scene when they're stretching where she's got the camera pointed at the shadow on the ground and the music is swelling. And mm-hmm. at first I couldn't even tell if that shadow was a plant that was uh, because the way the wind is blowing, the scene almost looks time-lapsed. And so I, I, it took me a second to figure out, is this a human shadow or is this the shadow of a plant as it's being time-lapsed and growing? And I don't know if that was her intent, but I loved the cinematography behind that scene. I thought it looked really cool. So, it is, from my understanding, it is both actually foreign legion uh, stretching and exercises and stuff and ballet because all of those scenes are uh, done by a ballet choreographer. But before she started filming, her, the actors, the crew, everybody did the actual exercises. And then once they started filming, she was like, okay, here's the choreography we're doing so that it wasn't completely unfamiliar for them. But this is not exactly what those folks are doing. Like with how um, graceful their stretching is and all of that, that is, I took ballet for a couple of years in my youth. And that is very much the kind of thing where you are reaching for long limbed and a lithe look it's kind of both and like Denise knew what she was doing and it's like well i want i want everyone to be familiar with these moves but i do want them to be an artistic form of those moves so that the drama and uh the beauty of form that they are portraying is is shown and i i I listened to this great uh podcast called linoleum knife by these two married guys who are just delightful <laughs> um alonzo Duralde and dave white and they did about 20 minutes on this and i found it and was just, their perspective on it is fascinating oh nice and um i believe it's 29th april of 2019 for those who want to listen to the little bit and they talk about how so much of those scenes feel very reminiscent of lenny reifenstahl's olympia with the the perfect body portrayal and well this is obviously not portraying only Aryans, like the musculature and the physicality is so perfect or idealized and i think that is very purposeful and i think that does play into the queer aspect of it but far more into this idealized form of masculinity which is very much in my mind what Denis was going for here. It's it's all about the masculinity and the relationships between men, not just queer ones, not just positive ones, but negative and problematic and all of that. Are we on the same page that the only overt or even close to overt references to any character's sexuality are basically none for the Legionnaires? Like they're just shown doing their training, you know, being intimate in the way you would be intimate as a soldier, living in close quarters, ironing together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Or even physically when uh, Sinten rescues the other Legionnaire, they're obviously physically close. But there's like no scene, even around the campfire when they're getting drunk, they're playing music together and then two of them get in a fight. There's no like, I think the closest thing that would come to some sort of intimate touching the night after the 
out in the club night where they're slowly walking through the back alleys and they are carrying at first the African uh, legionnaire on their shoulders and then they switch. And it's like, that was a very yeah. intimate moment. But I was like, is this like they're carrying Jesus on the cross? Uh, aside from that scene, which is a little confusing, I feel like the only references to sexuality are really Galoo's internal kind of questioning of things, which he strikes me as someone who's never been with a man. Like he's no. certainly trying to sell himself oh, yeah. as straight. He could certainly use getting laid, but look how he not. well he gets laid in the movie. Look how young and very, very feminine the woman his his the woman he's dating is in that. Well, we don't see him get laid. No, but very implied. The, right. the point I'm trying to make, though, is that even he's not depicted as gay. He's depicted as someone who potentially is questioning their sexuality. And then Forestier, interestingly, aside from the whole like rumor thing, again, there's like a few allusions, but I also found that the scene when he's in the car and the driver essentially offers him a prostitute. He says, you know, guess how much, or do you know how much a color girl is here? I'm assuming what he's trying to get at is that they're really cheap. And Forestier kind of laughs him off and just says, oh, like, you're going to get me in trouble, basically, or you're going to put me in the shit. And that's right. that's the end of that. But I think what you're supposed to get from that conversation is that he's not interested in a woman. Now, to be fair... It's certainly possible that someone could have aversions to a prostitute and would not be interested. I can't say that that's impossible, but within the context of this film, I think that what they're trying to allude to is he's not interested in women. That's kind of how I took that scene. Right. So to me, right. those were the only references to sexuality that were a little more direct in the film that I saw. What do you guys think? So by and large, I agree, except for the fact that so this movie is, even though there are parts of it that move into th the realm of in narrative storytelling of third person omniscient, a lot of it is from the perspective of Galoo. And I think a lot of that has to do with the camera work. So Galoo has never been with a man. The camera, on the other hand, is eating man ass like it's going out of style. <laughs> like right. there are so many lingering <laughs> shots of just man ass stretching, like clad. Like they're I, in their, I appreciated their tight. it. I appreciated it too. Like I said, if you like looking <laughs> at a at a well sculpted male buttock in a tight pair of pants stretching in ways that a person normally doesn't, this movie is like a candy store for your eyeballs. So I think that is where most of that subtext is coming in because again, she didn't fucking write anything. Like she wrote some lines, like a couple here and there. There's some <laughs> like, she didn't fucking put like, it's, Whatever, it's dude. like, it's all, it's all visual is what you I'm gonna saying. Insult like, Hemingway for his, his ability to be incredibly spare with his writing, or are you going to appreciate what he put on the page? I, I don't like, I like Hemingway's short stories. I don't like his novels because uh, okay. I think his spare, I think his spare form of writing works better for short fiction than it does for an entire book. But yeah, it, it's just not my cup of tea. I am a wordy bastard. 
like I we all know obviously you can't shut me up I I do think that Liam's blurb is going to be an almost silent film directed by Claire (laughs) seriously it is there's so little dialogue in this that she could have made the decision to make it a silent film if she wanted to and you would have changed maybe five percent of the movie I think it's purposeful it is. I know this is not a complaint. What I'm saying is it's a visual storytelling. It's a visual film. The entire story, the character development, it's almost all visual. And that visual is gay as hell. But see, here's the thing. Here's where, even though I I agree that generally this is considered a classic of queer cinema. and Absolutely, yeah. The, the gay... Uh, gay men just generally love it. Everyone involved in making this uh, on like the top, the principal crew, which is the director, the screenwriters, the editor, the cinematographer, except for one of the writers, were all women. Mm-hmm. But this was made in 1999 when women making films as directors and having this much creative control was fucking unheard of. Like, it's still barely heard of, you know. This was still eight years before any woman would win the Oscar for Best Directing or even be nominated, to be clear. Yeah, this was – because for a long time, like, when you'd hear female names being bandied about for Oscars uh, in the writing or directing realm, you pretty much just heard Sofia Coppola because she's a Coppola. Right, uh, right. But this was after this was after Virgin Suicides, but before Lost in Translation, yeah. And before The Hurt Locker, which is the first film to win one. Exactly. And I would expect that if you look at those other female directed films, not many of them would also have a fem- female cinematographer, mostly female writers, a female right. editor. Correct. Like that's a that's a hard group to find. Female cinematographers Women make up 10% of all cinematographers, not awarded or anything like that. We're talking about people who are in their guild or their union or whatever. 10% of cinematography is done by women. Editing is the same, even though some of the best films you've ever seen were edited by women. Almost all of Martin Scorsese's films, woman. Quentin Tarantino's films, edited by a woman. Star Wars. Brought to life by a woman. Yeah. Well, and there's there's also um, the the famous I can't remember who was the editor on Annie Hall. That was a woman as well, right? Yeah, one of Woody Allen's editors is a woman as well. Mad Max Fury Road was a was director's wife. Not to talk about the editor saving a movie, uh, and I don't want to like go down the Woody Allen rabbit hole. No, please. Annie Hall, when it was written and made and shot was a murder mystery. Oh my God. That's so terrible. Annie Hall was dead and he was presumed to be the person that killed her. And the editor went back and made Annie Hall. And was like, no, this is a terrible story. Yeah. Wendy Green is who was the film editor for Annie Hall, to be clear. But so I think that's the other thing is that this is so often perceived as being homoerotic Because we consider, especially during this time, not as much now, the film gaze to be the male gaze in that the standard expectation is that the people who are filming the story, writing the story, creating this film are men. 
And if a man had made this, then yeah, feels really homoerotic. Feels really homoerotic with a woman making it too. But since I knew it was Claire Denis, I was like, she really appreciates a good butt. And I love her for that. <laughs> I just love and, and I mean, she still does to this day. Like her most recent film is, is High Life with Robert Pattinson. And we That's Claire Denis. That's Claire Denis. That's her first English language film. And Robert Pattinson is still gorgeous. So even more gorgeous now, in my opinion, than he was when he was young. Oh, yeah. I love him in The Lighthouse. So I think that's the other thing that so many people didn't really take into consideration when or take into consideration now is that Claire Denis films things with her own gaze. She is not interested in replicating anything but her own internal ideas. And she talked a lot about that in the interview that I read with her about how she does not necessarily plan all of her shots in advance. She has ideas for how they want to go, but she refuses to stick to them. And she says, which is admittedly the dumbest thing I do, I don't take backups. I don't I don't take like color footage or like um extra footage or anything. I just go with it because that's what feels like filmmaking to me. It's an adventure. She sounds like Werner Herzog in his masterclass commercial. She does. And I bet they're buddies. Um, oh, I hope so. I hope they get drunk a lot. I know, me too. So that's the other thing that I think is really funny if we look at it is that it's like, well, this is an uncompromising director who gives no fucks about what your expectations are. And she wants to illustrate the beauty and complexity and everything that is masculinity with this film. And as someone who is a attracted to men like it is beautiful men are beautiful they're not just handsome and rugged like literally like some of those shots are just gorgeous because of how the light plays off of them of how they interact together and the intimacy that they have it doesn't need to be sexual it can still be beautiful just for being that way there are some light bulbs that I would like to fuck from this movie. Like when we're talking about cinematography, <laughs> like there are just some amazing shots. One of my favorite oh, right? shots was the house where the Muslim legionnaires are praying inside. You see at, at mm. first you see all the sandals left outside and then you see that they're praying inside or having some kind of community moment. And then at some point, or maybe it's the guard duty scene. I can't remember, but there's a shot. That is a still camera on a light bulb that's above the door frame and the building is white. And that's the only lighting in the scene. I doubt that they did any trickery to light anything else. And it mm -hmm. was, I feel like when I listen to Roger Deakins talking about how to light a scene, well, actually, when I hear him talking about, if you've never listened to his podcast, Team Deakins, it's phenomenal. They go over all Definitely. kinds of aspects of filmmaking and interview all kinds of industry people. Him and his wife are just the best. They are the and best. They're both cinematographers. That's the best part about it. Also, her name's James, which I just love. James. Oh, that's right. For beginning filmmakers, beginning cinematographers, he talks about just like take a raw light bulb without a sheet, without a shade, without anything in front of it, and learn how to work a camera around a raw light bulb in a room. Because it'll teach you a lot about how lighting affects the shot and how it changes as you move around the light bulb, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like I could hear him talking in that shot where you're looking at the front door to this building and it's a beautiful like white stucco sort of, you know, 
East Northeast African style house. And all you're seeing is the light from that light bulb and the way it's casting shadows on the angles of the building and everything else. It's just like one of my favorites. There's a lot of beautiful natural shots in daylight here with, you know, the Red Sea and, and, and the sun shining on the desert and the salt flats. Like there's a lot of beautiful shots in this, but that was one of my favorites. Yeah. Agnes Godard is a fucking master. Phenomenal. And, and this is, um, she really got her start with, Claire Denis. And this was one of her earlier films that was actually considered like, this is a film as opposed to, you know, a short film or something like that. So I think it's time for the breakdown where we ask what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, you go first this time. Okay. So man, the objective of this movie a tough one it is it is that's that's uh not it's an art film objectives are hard to come by you know it's it's not as though this has a grand overarching like world altering geopolitical message to it or anything the like if it does i missed it i don't think you missed it i don't think i missed it either the film meanders an awful lot. So I'm really hesitant to place an objective on this movie. <laughs> uh, I, this kind of uh, uh, defies objectification. I got to tell you the, you know, and Dan, I know that you're, you're probably going to want to talk about this in, in your breakdown as well, but there were points when I almost just fell asleep because it was, and that's not in a, Not because the film was boring, although it is, (laughs) it was, it was not because the, the film was in any way uninteresting. There are parts of it that are absolutely gripping kind of like one of the complaints, if you can call it a complaint about, uh, Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve, did I say it right? This is a problem that I also have with Denis Villeneuve. Oh, that was beautiful. Perfect. Thank you. And his films, I haven't seen a lot of them. I've seen Arrival and I've seen 2049. And it's almost like he's trying to put me to sleep. Like there's a a mesmerization that happens where it's just like, maybe it's the, the, uh, like, I feel like he's sending me subliminal shit in the sound design where it's like a lot of bass that's like hitting at some natural frequency for me where it's just like, oh, <laughs> What what just happened? I missed something. What did I miss? And this movie, without that same complex sound design, had that sort of like hypnotic rhythmic, like there's a lot of ocean and a lot of desert and a lot of rocky landscapes and not a lot of dialogue and all of the character development. It's like it's like Barry Lyndon, where it's like all who's looking at who. Great comparison. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about it when we were talking about art film and yeah exactly and this movie really like it came so close to losing me so many times <laughs> but that ending is for my money one of the greatest endings to a movie i have ever seen in my life we're talking like walking into the mist in casablanca 
we're talking dropping the mug in the usual suspects. We're talking like twist, not a twist, doesn't matter. Name your favorite ending to a movie and then watch Beau Travai. This like the ending of this film made me like it was it was almost like I got slapped on the back of the head really, really hard and immediately like woke me up to so many things that I thought I had slept through through the rest. It made me reframe the entire movie. Yeah, me too. And it, and not unearned. It doesn't clang. It doesn't. It, it, it's not a missed note. You don't feel tricked. You don't feel like you don't feel bamboozled. You, it's it's not like what 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 are you doing to me? Like it's a and it's so over the top that I feel like I could see somebody getting the giggles watching it. I did not. I was struck completely dumb. I had no words anymore, which for me is saying something right like i just kind of sat there staring in awe at this fucking movie and i will let one of you go into more of the details of the ending but the back of the box of the blu-ray talks about like the the revolutionary ending of the movie or it's like an ending that you'll never forget and normally you're like oh well that means like one of three things is going to happen and i'm probably going to see it from a mile away that it's impossible to ruin the ending of this movie because it's indescribable. So I don't think this movie really had much of an objective other than an expression of, like you said, an examination of masculinity, an expression of desire and a a certain amount of Um, self-loathing. It's, it's very, very squishy. It's (laughs) like the, the, the ideas in this movie are all, soft and squishy, much like myself. But that being said, maybe because it has no clear objective, it couldn't help but hit the mark. Uh, For me, it really nailed it. I loved this movie. One of my, and and I know I talked to you guys about this prior to the episode, but there are some interesting comparisons to be made, not only to Billy Budd, which is obvious. Uh, There are like direct analogous, comparisons to be made. Uh, but one of my favorite movies of all time is the 1939 foreign legion film Bojest, which, which was also a source of inspiration for this film to be clear. Had to be because Bo Travai is the name of the film that has absolutely no relevance to the plot or anything in the film whatsoever. Uh, so both being a two word French title the first one being bow and both being about the foreign legion i can't imagine there aren't uh those kind of similarities the the uh emphasis on the fact that they take anyone that people often have a mysterious past there's a long storied romanticization is that even a word i don't know but people people romanticize the the foreign legion for its exploits and the mystery and that ability to go in and find a place when you had no place else to go and create this new life for yourself and then seeing that stripped away is kind of heartbreaking you know i was telling dan before before the podcast 
I haven't read Billy Budd, but I can make it look like I have. Uh, I have actually, that's how I graduated college. <laughs> One could argue it's how you got Edward Norton's alarm clock, but. It is how I got Edward Norton's alarm clock. <laughs> got to join the Patreon to get that inside story. But Billy Budd uh, is by Herman Melville. My experience with it was it was adapted into a film by Peter Ustinov, who was a great Shakespearean actor, but also uh, this was his, this might've been his only directorial credit, but he wrote and adapted Billy Budd for the big screen. And he played who would be analogous with the, uh, with the commandant. His, his character's name was captain veers. He's the captain of a, of an English Navy ship. Billy Budd is the new seaman who joins the crew and is immediately loved by everybody except for uh, the quartermaster Claggart, who was evil of heart and soul and visage and just all around bad dude. And Claggart hates Billy Budd and pushes him to some extreme limits. There is some, and I, and it's been so long since I've seen the movie. I don't remember the circumstances, but there is an altercation and in it, Billy Budd strikes Claggart, but he kills him in the process. He didn't mean to do it. He did strike out at him and I think he, he fell down and broke his skull or something. And then Captain Veers is forced to hang Billy Budd for striking and murdering his superior on the, in accordance with the Navy regulations at the time. And Billy Budd's last words before he is hanged is God bless captain Veers. And it's, it's an interesting moral tale, uh, of moral ambiguity. The thing that I find interesting about this is that Galoo serves as both the Claggart figure and in a sense, the Billy Budd figure in this, um, in that his life is then ruined by the fact that he kills it was ostensibly the Billy Budd character. So it's, it's an interesting play with the original narrative. Now I have read, and Dan, I think you have too read some Moby Dick. That is another one that I have not read the whole thing, but I read enough to know. Wow. I've outread Liam on something. That's, that's not going to happen very often. <laughs> this is Liam in college when Liam didn't read anything he was supposed to read because he was too busy rereading Catch-22 for the 20th time. Right. Mm, like you do in college. Like you do. You got to. It's why you write such good intros now. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some homosexual overtones to be found in Moby Dick. The infamous or famous chapter is uh, a squeeze of the hand where these guys are they're out hunting sperm whales and they are squeezing the lumps out of the sperm that they've collected. And like the one dude goes to grab a, like physically they got a big tub of sperm and they got their <laughs> hands in it up to the elbows, just like squeezing these lumps out of it so that it's usable for whatever you use whale sperm for. <laughs> and the guy squeezes something that he thinks is sperm, but it's his shipmates hand next to him and they kind of grip hands for a minute and then they like lock eyes and then they let go and look away and nobody has to know because like what happens in the sperm stays in the sperm. It's like hard to get more homoerotic than yes. that literally. It really really yes. is. Well uh, there were there were rumors about Herman Melville to be clear. 
There were rumors. There were. Which is all there you're going to get. And if there were rumors, there were truths, is all I'm saying in that time period. But yeah, so no, I love this movie. It is steeped in not only the 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 literary tradition of Herman Melville, but also in the cinematic tradition of Bojest. Bojest was also adapted from a novel that nobody reads anymore, not even in school. I think I'm the only person I know who's ever read it. Yeah, I, it's it's such a good film. It really is. I love it. It's just fantastic. And whether the, you know, Katie, you mentioned going back to 1999, this was sadly still a, a, a place in time. And it still happens to a certain extent today, but a time when the gay community needed to claim its stuff. Yes, yes. And whether something was intended to be gay or was like, oh, well, this character's gay, but it's not a gay movie. Like when when the, the gay community got got something to them, they took it. You right. know, when they when this happened in you know, in Fright Pub we talked about this when we covered the uninvited, there was a character that was considered to be like a a poorly coded lesbian. And one of the reviews at the time noted that like in the middle of the day, women dressed in a certain manner were all going to see this movie together. It was like the lesbians were coming out to see this movie at the matinee yes. just to see a lesbian on stage or on screen. Um, so I don't know if this movie was meant to be an iconic gay film, but it is an iconic gay film and far be it from me or anybody else for, for my two cents to say them nay yeah this film is complex enough where it feels audacious to even try and prescribe what objective did claire denis have in making this film because i'm not really sure and i think that possibly this is one of those again art film works of art that was done in a way where i don't know I'm I'm not a big artist. Obviously, I have some creativity to me and I've written things and stuff, but I don't consider myself an artist the way a painter or an actor is. But I imagine that there are times as an artist where you put something out there and you're not really sure how it's going to be received or what other people are going to pull out of it. And I feel like if I were an artist... I would not have the attitude of like, well, this is what I meant and this is what this is. I feel like I would be receptive to how other people would take in my music or my writing or whatever it is and make up their own minds and, you know, take from that. So to me, it's sort of like perhaps the objective was to put ambiguity and self-examination of humans on display. It happens to deal with, you know, semi homosexual material or homoerotic or whatever you want to call it. But really, I think on a deeper level, it just has to do with the insecurity that all humans have in between their own thoughts and their upbringing and then the situation that they have thrust themselves in or that they are thrust into, especially in these kind of extreme scenarios, which is probably the best reason why this movie makes our list not being exactly a war film is because when we talk about exploring the more complex or darker sides of human nature under dire circumstances, I think this qualifies. This is not your average human circumstance that these men are in. 
I don't know how much of Claire Denis' own perspective or the writer's own perspective is going into this as opposed to just trying to show you things mostly from Galoo's eyes, which is an interesting perspective to take since he seems mostly confused about what he wants and who he is and where he's at. And I think that, like Liam mentioned, if, if Claire Denis is obviously good at a lot of things, but one thing she's really good at is to sort of plunge into that ambiguity, both in her scant dialogue, but also in the cinematography and what she chooses to depict in the background of these mundane conversations, such as the Legionnaires talking shit to the three Muslim guys going, oh, this spaghetti bolognese is really great. And the guys are like, fuck you, you know, because they know that they're fasting for Ramadan. That would seem like such a military thing. I was such a typical thing. Yeah, I was like, oh, man, Dan's going to love that. Yeah, because I feel like the standard of the military is to not hate anyone because of their race or background, ethnicity, religion. But you could definitely make humor out of it and talk shit to them about it. So like. <laughs> racial humor and religious humor is going to be all over the place in any military, especially the more you go into a combat job and like a forward deploy job, the more that dark humor comes out. So I really appreciated that. Yeah. It almost, uh, it almost made me think back to, you know, some scenes, some scenes in this made me think back to scenes in the outpost actually, Mm -hmm. you know, with a lot of that, just like life on the base sort of thing like i'm glad i saw the outpost first because like i know i didn't necessarily love the outpost Mm -hmm. but i think if i had seen it done this well and then watched the outpost or done this artfully sure sure and then watched the art outpost i think my appreciation for the outpost would have gone down even further i mean definitely different objectives to the two films i think we can agree on that yeah oh absolutely One of the things that threw me off and I felt that this was intentional on the director's part is, so for one, this is like, so I'm not going to go as far as to say that the film has any parts that are boring to me. Again, I'm watching this under a very specific context where like, I'm not watching this for my entertainment. I'm watching this to examine it, to think about it, and then to be able to have a semi-intelligent conversation about it between us and to our audience. So that's a very specific context. That being said, it's the longest 92 minute film I've ever seen. And again, that's not a slight. (laughs) Uh, Oh, it's still true though. It's very slow, methodical. I watched it twice. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it. It's beautiful. It's not a big time commitment, but it feels like a big time commitment. Yeah, I'm not downgrading it at all. I'm just saying it is slow moving. Stalker, the Russian film, is like that as well, even though that one's probably closer to three hours. It is really slow and really scant in dialogue, but it is just gorgeous, and I understand why it's famous. So it just depends on if you're in the mood to sit through something like that. I will say, though, in the scenes in town, there is a deliberate tension and foreshadowing thrown into those scenes, especially by the music. The music is like almost thriller music in those scenes. And Galoo is walking around. It's like he goes into the bar. He walks right out of the bar. And you're like, what did he see? Why did he walk right out? Who's he looking for? And the car pulls up behind the Legionnaires and it's honking at them. And you're like, oh shit, there's going to be a fight. You see their interaction with the girls. You're, you don't really see them drinking, but you're assuming they're out in town getting drunk. And the whole time I'm like, okay. 
These guys are going to fight. Someone's going to get killed. Someone's going to get raped. Some like horrible accident is about to happen. And I felt that way the entire film. And then finally, you see the tension come to a head with the with the punch scene, which I like the way they did that because I was like, wow, this is so obviously fake and choreographed, but it's designed to look choreographed. Mm-hmm. And, and I can appreciate that. It looks like a ballet punch. And then, of course, foregone conclusion, you can see that what Galu was hoping would happen in provoking Senten happens, drops him off in the desert, etc. And then it's like, okay, he he was given a faulty compass. He is laying down on a bed of salt, literally. I'm like, okay, so he's going to be a mummy in, in like in the next eight hours. And so I was really surprised. I was surprised when he comes back and he's alive. And I was almost disappointed, not because I wanted to see the character die, but because I was like, oh, this is a little anticlimactic. I thought the stakes were going to be higher here. I thought that he was getting kicked out and going back to society because he killed someone, you know? And in the end, it's like, well, the guy made it back. He figured he would have been punished or something. So it was a, I thought it was a strange thwarting of my expectations between the buildup and then what happens and then the consequences. So I'm not saying that's wrong or that I dislike it. I'm just saying that surprised me about the film and kind of threw me off. And then I'll, I'll close by saying that for one, I never thought that a film was going to make me listen to Corona's rhythm of the night and give it this like, (laughs) somber kind of tragic feel to it because this I was a had song that song in my head forever ever since i watched this movie no, rhythm but not in a night. bad way at least not for me like i'm gonna go listen to it after this i've been like singing it to myself it's more meaningful seeing that dancing it imbued it with all this meaning and this is a song that was very famous in europe in the early 90s i remember it so i was too young to go out clubbing at the time But as Italians, I've always been fans of disco and techno and going to the discotheque, et cetera. Like most Europeans, that song was just blowing up in Italy in the mid and early 90s. So I'd heard it plenty of times, even though I didn't have any like strong personal affiliation with it. And so to hear it in this context, I was like, wow, that is that says something about this director that by the end of this experience, I am now looking at this super basic clubby song with this whole like layer and undertone of tragedy to it that I never saw before. And it's weird because I don't think you could have done that with just any song, but there's something about, especially the verses in the song, not the chorus, that give me that feeling. Now, when it comes to the final scene, I wasn't sure whether it worked for me. I had to watch the film twice. And, you know, I'd read about the scene being famous, etc. My first impression was that this was heaven, essentially, that he shot himself in that bed and that this was like the thing that was happening next. And then as I read like some reviews and other people's opinions about the film may have been sort of this representation of something he said earlier in the film maybe freedom begins with remorse, which is a really deep statement. And so I couldn't tell if what that scene is supposed to represent is him sort of, I don't want to say coming out because he's not doing it to someone else, but it's sort of like just coming to grips with like himself and really digging deeper into him 
and feeling free to like do this crazy dance to the song however he wants to um in the sort of ideal of liberation as opposed to what he felt you know being in the uniform military so yeah i think the ending is also ambiguous as this movie deserves to have and i could certainly agree it's an ending you're never going to forget um so i i certainly have no right to say like what i would have done differently or what ending i would have put into it but i can say that i'm not a hundred percent sure after my second viewing what exactly claire denis was trying to say with this film she said it very beautifully and i really appreciate that it exists and i really enjoyed it the interesting thing about the uh, two, two points about the ending that scene wasn't intended to be the end of the movie when they shot it. It wasn't intended to be the end of the movie initially. She said that after she shot the first scene, she knew that that was going to be the end of the film. Yeah. she Well, she knew she didn't want him to, she wanted didn't want this to happen where it was supposed to. Like she wanted him to have this at the end. And then the, the actor, Denis Levant, when he talks about, his character and he talks about Galou, the Claggart character, which is interesting because he very clearly identifies it with the Billy Bud counterpart. But the dance scene at the end and the the scene of him like combing his hair in front of the mirror when he's dressed in black, he talks about that as the man in black, like it's a different character, which is really interesting. Just from like, I didn't get that from the movie, but like, if you listen to interviews with him, he discusses it like it's a completely different person, which is cool for his performance and like really makes sense from a, from a technical, like a, a an actor's technique kind of uh, way of going about it. But really, I think kind of made that, made it land, like whatever his his perspective was that he approached this role with, I fucking loved. So I totally agree with you guys. When we're talking about objectives in this film, I think whenever you're talking about art films, objective is a very malleable idea. There's a famous story with Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451, where he was giving a talk at a college and someone asks him, and I'm, I'm, paraphrasing to the to the nines with this someone asks him oh this is obviously a criticism of censorship and he's like the fuck are you talking about no this is about tv and he maintained to the end of his existence that fahrenheit 451 was not about censorship and i think when it clearly is for those of us who read it now the difference for me with art films is that people who make art films especially this kind they know that they are making something that is very up to interpretation and they welcome those interpretations from their audience. And so they do their best to give us their perspective, but then they are definitely welcoming of how did this hit for you? Did I hit my mark? Do you understand it? What did you get out of it? Like that is one of my favorite things about art films is because they do feel very open to interpretation 
And I think there is definitely a lot that Denise was going for with this from a lot of the things we've talked about, from the homoeroticism to uh, both the toxic and positive masculinity on display, from the relationships that men have with each other and all of that. There's a whole lot going on here. And I think for me, she succeeds in making us ask questions. You cannot watch this movie without asking questions about what the fuck is she trying to say here? And it definitely makes you think about it. And that is my favorite part about it, is that you cannot watch this without thinking. Because I have no problem. I I watch all the Marvel movies. I have no problem with watching movies where everything is laid out nice and easy for you. And you want to talk about things not being easily laid out for you. Like, people shit on Marvel a lot, but like, they're they're fucking playing some four-dimensional chess. I love it. So, you know, I love those kinds of things, but I also really enjoy films where the director and the artists behind it make it clear that this is a film that is about the audience interpretation. And I think that is really what Denis is going for in this, because all of the interviews I read with her were very much like, well, this is what I was going for, but I was open and like, this is what I tried to do, but I'm okay if that's not what you got from it. If you got something else, tell me. I'm interested to hear it. So I think that's one of the things I love about this movie is that it does feel very open to interpretation. And that's one of the reasons I'll continue to watch it over and over again is because I feel like I'll get something different out of it every time I watch it. I feel like I'll be able to focus on like what is, you know, Galou doing in this? What is his dialogue exactly? What is his relationship with his commandant and all of that? Like, I love that there's so much to interpret in this. And I think for me, that feels like the objective is it's a thing you can watch that allows you to really examine what masculinity means, whether you are, as the filmmakers were, women, whether you are, you know, as most of the actors were, men, or whether you are somewhere in between, you know, in 1999, non-binary folks were few and far between, not a thing in public consciousness. But I, I right. think there is a lot of room for examination of non-binary identities within this. For me, Denis hits it. She really gets to the point of making you question, is this homosexual? Is this straight? Is this, you know, negative or positive? And that's the whole point of it. And I think she just nails that. And that's one of the reasons I love art films is because art films should make us question. Like I brought up at Eternity's Gate before, and that film's purpose is to make us question what is mental health and what is a normal state of our brain and emotions and all of that. And this film really asks the questions of, what is masculinity? What does it mean to feel masculine? What does it mean to perform masculinity? And what is it like just to every day be someone who is assigned a masculine role in their life? There are points, I am not going to lie. There are points where I was like, 
uh, shit, shit, I fell asleep. Wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> every few right? minutes. And, and I mean, goddamn. To be clear, I watch this after work, and that, like, after work, my brain is fucking dead because all I do is deal with numbers all day. I still was like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to power through this because I really want to see what happens. And the end, where we see Galu go through this moment of rage where he decides, like, fuck it. It's worth it. I'm going to kill this kid. Or not, even if it's not that definite, I am going to have no care whether or not he lives. I'm going to give him this faulty compass. I'm going to send him out in the middle of nowhere. And whatever happens to him is whatever happens. And then we see him live with that. And then in the final moment of the film, there is a dance scene and uh, of him in a discotheque dancing and they there were two takes for that scene and claire denis and none of it was planned in advance they were both used i believe right uh yeah i think they're cut together claire denis and denis levant kind of collaborated together and she explained it to him as i want you to do a dance between life and death and that's what we're seeing and when i found that out i was like Okay, I can really see it because at the end he really just fucking loses it and goes all out. And he's a beautiful dancer. Yeah, really good. Totally unexpected. Like he's doing all those swirling turns and all that. And that's really hard to do without like losing your place. And he manages to pull it off and it just feels so sincere. And that's why I really loved it because I felt like the movie is trying to tell you something and I feel like what it's trying to tell you can change depending on who's watching it, where you're at in your life, what your mood is at the time when you're watching the movie. And I love films where you can go back and revisit them again and again and get something different out of it. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that Boat Travail has, whether it's a war movie, a movie about being in the military, masculinity, homosexuality any of those things. It has a lot to offer. And that's, I think, what makes it such a great film and why it's one of her like most well-known movies is because it just, it hits over and over again. So I really liked it. And I think if you're, if you've made it this far and you haven't watched the movie, give it a try. Just make sure you have some coffee when you watch it. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> 92 minutes well spent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm definitely interested in watching more of her films. And and something I forgot to say about Denis Levant earlier is I remember watching this with Jackie my first time and going, and I think this is a compliment to the actor, but I remember thinking, man, there's something about that guy where he looks like he could have just been plucked off the street and he thrown does. into this film. The nose and the scars and all of that. Yeah, there's something about his face face and his acting that doesn't sell like professional actor to me but not in a bad way but in the way that he's really selling that role like he embodies the role of this just random legionnaire yeah and i imagine we would see a lot of his great acting if we watch some of his other stuff and his theater work that he's done etc but this actor just really sold me on being an actor without like quote unquote 
acting. You know what I mean? Like right. you just, it feels very natural. It's he a naturalistic feels natural. He feels like a real person for sure. So I got to just commend him on that. Wow. I thought this was going to be a short episode and it turns out it's going to be on the longer end. So what are we doing next time? We are shifting tones completely and we are going to be going from Beau to Argo from uh, 2012 uh, Best Picture winner Argo, starring and directed by Ben Affleck, based on the the book about Tony Mendez and uh, the the six diplomats who managed to escape the compound during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979 and 1980, and his efforts to extricate them from that perilous position that they found themselves in. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We appreciate all of your support. We are trying to mix it up. We also do realize that kind of after the fact, we realized that this particular film wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to find on streaming. So we do keep that in mind when we go through our list. And we promise that if we throw something in there that you have to go buy on Blu-ray or download, you know, get a subscription to Criterion or do the trial or whatever, We'll space those out so that there's at least something for everyone. But yeah, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And we are really excited for the next episode. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks, y'all. Goodbye. This is the rhythm of the night. The night. Oh, yeah. The rhythm of the night. This is the rhythm of my life. So what are we doing next time? What are we doing next time? Liam? Argo. Argo. (laughs) No, Liam, that was your moment to introduce the movie, damn it. Oh, fuck. God damn it. I was giving you the hint. This is like line. Exactly. Line. Exactly. I'm the, what is it called? The, 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 The script supervisor or whatever who... Who whispers things to the cast? Uh, that would typically be an assistant stage manager okay. uh, who who's sitting on book for you. Usually not during a performance, but unless <laughs> things have gone really, really badly in rehearsal. Oh, oh, I've been happens. in some of those situations uh, as well. But yeah, it's normally the ASM who's who's sitting on book. <laughs> <laughs>